0: Hear the word of the Lord from the pen of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off this old self with its practices and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And may the Lord add his blessing to the hearing, understanding, and, and obedience to his holy word. I invite you to take uh, from the bulletin the insert for, and we're going to sing together the chorus, Give Thanks. Uh, trust it's one that you're familiar with. If not, I guess I'll be singing a solo. <laughs> uh, this, this is the a familiar scripture song, uh, going back I think to the 70s or uh, to the 80s. So most most of us should be quite comfortable with it. It's within our uh, age range. So, and we're and of course we're thinking about the fact that Thanksgiving is just four days away. Um, and we'll have more to say about that in the sermon. So let's uh, uh, see if we can make our way through this uh, chorus give thanks with a grateful heart give thanks to the holy one give thanks because he's given jesus christ his son give thanks with a grateful heart Give thanks to the Holy One, give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his Son. And now let the weak say I am strong, let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done. For us. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich, because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Because of what the Lord has done for us, give thanks. I'm not quite sure how the last words fit in, but that's usually how it, how it ends. Very good. All right. I invite you to turn once again, uh, to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 is our uh, text for this morning. Beloved, in a few short days, you all know, I trust, that we will be celebrating a national holiday of thanksgiving. While this holiday can be celebrated in some sense by all Americans, and that's the intent, we as Christians, I believe, are in a particularly appropriate place to thank our great and glorious triune God for all the blessings that he has Bestowed upon us. We, as the people of God, therefore come into his presence this morning with thanksgiving for all the spiritual and material gifts and indeed creature comforts with which he has blessed us. But we have so much more for which to be thankful. The Apostle Paul, in our text for this morning, writes to us about the most important reason. We have to be thankful. Salvation in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our first point. Paul is combating a false teaching uh, that is circulating in the church at Colossae. We do not know all the details about uh, the teaching that was circulating, but it seems to have melded together different ideas from Jewish legalism, Jewish mysticism, and Greek Gnosticism. This was a potent package of soul-destroying religion. Instead of encouraging trust in Jesus, it inculcated self-salvation through esoteric or secret knowledge and a concern for angelic being beings, and that's an issue that the early church has to deal with uh, a fair bit, that uh, there was this tendency to worship angels. Not that we are tempted to do anything like that in our day, right? Hmm. In some ways, we might think of the Colossian heresy as an ancient form of New Age religion. You may may remember back in the 80s when that expression first became common. The heresy that Paul was combating was incredibly seductive, but Paul met it head-on with the truth as it is in Jesus. Our concern this morning is not with the heresy, but with the abiding truth that Paul brought against it. Instead of nebulous, airy-fairy pseudo-religiosity, Paul reminded the saints in Colossae that their portion was with Jesus Christ in heaven. So the problem isn't with heaven. It's what we know about it or think about it. Paul begins our text with a statement to the effect that if... Or it should—it uh, would be better translated "since," because Paul is not casting the the saints uh, in the church here. He's not calling into question their profession of faith. So the "if" is better translated "since you have been raised with Christ." Therefore, do the following. Paul is not in doubt about the saints at Colossae. He thinks they are spiritually sound, even if bombarded on every side with false teaching. Since we have been raised with Christ, our hearts and minds should be trained upon him and not on matters of mundane concern. Paul will uh, give a sampling of what are the earthly matters in the two vice lists, or those two vice lists that we've already read. He will, we will consider those shortly. But since we have been raised with Christ, this is how we shall live in the world. To think on things above, beloved, is not to stare into the skies and meditate on the clouds and stars and the vast universe, as interesting as that would be for the advancement of science and has been, that is not Paul's concern. He is battling an ethereal religion of spiritual one-upmanship, a form of pulling oneself up by one's own bootstraps, as it were. Paul will have none of this self-salvation, no in merely human individual, no ordinary human individual can save himself. But beloved, remember that Christ has already accomplished salvation for his people. Think about that. It's a done deal. You don't need to earn what you have already been given as a gracious gift. Salvation does not come from checking your daily horoscope or catching up on the backlog of episodes of Touched by an Angel or a Highway to Heaven. Sorry, if you like those, my wife does. Christians are not saved by allegiance to an abstract series of universal principles that never touch the ground. We are not saved by knowing how a certain star or planet aligns with another star or planet. We are not saved by an angel or a host of angels. We are saved by the accomplishment of redemption in history by Jesus Christ and by the further proclamation of the message of that accomplishment, which happens to be, by the way, what the gospel is all about. We are saved by the very Jesus revealed to us, beloved, in the pages of the New Testament. The Jesus who gave his life on the cross in our place, and who was raised on the third day for our salvation. The same Jesus who appeared to his disciple over a period of 40 days before he ascended to the Father's right hand, where he ministers in the heavenly sanctuary for us now, and where he presently rules from the universe and the church. That is why Paul can say that our life is hidden with Christ in God, who is in the heavens. Right now, beloved, our Lord is unseen, and life in this world can be a challenge. But one day Jesus will return to take us to himself. Our life now is bounded by Christ's ascension on the one hand and his return on the other. And we ought always to be meditating and contemplating that fact. Paul will now explain the negative and the positive practical consequences of Christ's heavenly ministry and our thinking on things above. To put it concisely, we are to be so heavenly minded that we are of tremendous earthly good. And to bring us back to the theme of thanksgiving, Paul will remind us at the end of our passage that it is thankfulness for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that fuels our Christian life in this world. And that brings us to our second point. You have put to death the old self. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ for redemption, and rescue from the divine wrath and the miseries and the consequences of our sin, we are united to him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a way similar to the natural relationship we have with Adam. When we believe on Christ, we are no longer in Adam, but we are now in Christ. We are part of the new creation that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Behold, all things are Gone, behold, the new has come. We are no longer in Adam, but in Christ. Paul likes to speak of our relationship to Jesus and how he saves us, like it was a taking off of old, tattered, and soiled clothes, and the putting on of new, fresh, clean clothes. Now, Paul doesn't do this simply because he happens to like The picture of of the the exchange of clothing, no. If you remember, uh, in the Garden of Eden after the fall, God removed the fig leaves from Adam and Eve and replaced them with animal skins. As the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is an unusual dynamic at work here in the putting off of the old humanity, and I use the word humanity because Paul doesn't have here in view just an individual man or woman, boy or girl, but the the fact that we are part of a whole new creation. So this unusual dynamic at work uh, involves being in Christ, You have already put off the old humanity, but you are to continue to reckon yourself to have put off the old humanity as well. Sometimes you've heard it said, be what you are. You have, in fact, put off the old man, but you are to continue to reckon with the fact that you have put the old man off. You are to consider yourself dead to sin, And at the same time, you must put to death your sinful desires. The old theologians used to refer to this activity as mortification. The two sides of sanctification or growth in grace are putting sin to death and walking in newness of life. The two terms, the technical terms, are mortification and vivification. In this paragraph, Paul is concerned to remind us that as Christians, as saints, we are to not do certain things, not say certain things, and not even think or feel certain ways. Paul has already told us to think on things above and not on earthly things. And he reiterates that now. He is very specific, and he begins his two vice lists, uh, with a focus on sexuality. Now, a vice list and a virtue list, you see these in the, in the New Testament. It's where a list of vices or virtues is rattled off. We find this in Paul. We find it in Peter. Uh, this was a common way of writing back in the ancient Greco-Roman world that, that also is taken up by Christians and used and so we see that the, 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 the vices that we are to, to, to flee from begin with sexuality. Paul condemns sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and covetousness. Now, uh, these, uh, uh, we believe, are not meant to be uh, distinguished too much because they overlap, right? Right? Sexual immorality is is impure, it also involves passion, and covetousness always comes in because we want something that we ought not to have. And Paul notes here that these things are idolatry. Now, in the ancient world, such behavior was often tied to pagan forms of religious worship. As we've noted in our study of Romans 1, idolatry is at the base of these kinds of sinfulness, at the root. It is the root cause of sexual perversion. Beloved, anything we worship as God that isn't God is an idol. We don't have to build wooden or metal or stone statues. It can be something that has captivated our minds and hearts that falls far short of the glory of God. And Paul tells us that God's wrath is coming upon those who do such things. Not only does God's wrath rest upon such people in this life, which is true enough, and that's some of what Paul is getting at in Romans 1:18 to 32, but God is also reserving to himself a general judgment at the end of the age And his wrath and anger will fall upon those who still wear their old humanity clothing with pride. We learn further that such people also exhibit some other behaviors that uh, would land them in the eternal divine doghouse. Paul reminds the Colossians that these are behaviors and lifestyles in which they once walked, but now no more. And it's important that we remember this, and he says similar things to the the saints in Corinth, that uh, you used to walk this way, but now you no longer walk these these ways because it is inappropriate for the Christian. These folk are angry, wrathful, malicious, They slander and backbite, and they utter obscenities, and they lie to one another. We see this all around us, don't we, beloved, at work and school and in the supermarket and at the mall and on the computer. But there is no place for this in the life of the church. There is no place for this among the people of God. None of these behaviors that Paul has listed is attractive. None of them ought to be practiced in the church. Paul goes on to remind us that we have put off the old humanity with its deadly habits, and we have put on the new man. Beloved, my concern here, of course, is to encourage you in godly living. I'm not here to whip you into submission. Some preachers, that seems to be what they think they are doing. Only the Holy Spirit can apply the Word of God to your hearts and minds and bring you into conformity to the image of God. I simply point you to the Word, and the Spirit molds you and makes you into the child He wants. Yes, we are called to think about what and whose we are. If we are joined to Christ... The sins of the old man are to be put off, and this takes a lifetime to get passable at. Notice I use the word passable, that means eh, it's okay. We never in this life achieve what uh, has sometimes been referred to as works of supererogation. The idea that we can go above and beyond what God requires. No one except for his own son has ever been able to do that. So it takes a lifetime to be passable at endeavoring after new obedience. But if you fail to remember that you are united to Christ and that you have, in fact, put off the old man, you can Turn back to Christ and find forgiveness with him in an instant. Why delay? Why not be renewed in the image of God? Why not regain the holiness, righteousness, and true knowledge that Adam and Eve had in the garden prior to the fall and so much more? And that brings us to our third point. So we've considered mortification of sin or the putting off of the old man in Christ. Now we need to meditate on Paul's comments about putting on the new man. Yes, remember that since we are united to Christ by faith, we have died and have been raised with him. Or we can say we, put off the old, we have put off the old man and have put on the new man. But as Paul reminds us, we are to continue putting off on the one hand and putting on on the other. Another way of saying this is that we cannot live the Christian life in its negative or positive senses unless we have died with and been raised together with Jesus Christ. Nobody has died with Christ and been raised with him who has not trusted in him For salvation, it's that simple. Now, Paul gives a character trait description of the acts of the new man. Paul directs his hearers to put on the new man who is holy and beloved, compassionate in heart, kind, humble, meek, and patient, forbearing and forgiving others as the Lord has forgiven you. And he tells us to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. None of these can be produced as God intends them, naturally. Not possible. Sure, we might be able to approximate on one or two of these gifts of the Spirit, but not all of them. And we are not given to think that we can pick and choose among them. They, may, they, they in fact, do come together as a bouquet, and a sweet-smelling bouquet at that So they come as a collection and are authentically produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And what is the result of this putting off and putting on? What does Paul tell us? Peace. Not merely the absence of conflict, although that would not be a bad thing in and of itself. Peace and harmony are a fine end product that are created anew within our congregation because we are united to the Lord and his spirit is at work applying his word to our hearts and minds and and reaping a harvest of rich character. Reaping a harvest of rich character. It would be a mistake if we began to think of all of this, that all of it happens apart from our abiding in Christ as a branch abides in a vine. In all of this, the Holy Spirit is taking from the risen and reigning Christ and sharing his blessings with us. We cannot benefit from the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit unless we have already been tied to the Messiah in his crucifixion and resurrection. And when we by faith cling to the hem of Christ's garment, We are constantly aware of our dependence upon our Lord for anything good that we have and are. And because of that constant awareness of dependence, we are thankful. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. What permeates the life of the Christian who has died And been raised with Christ and has put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity as a heart of gratitude. That is, the Christian is thankful. Three times in these last verses, 15, 16, and 17, Paul commands his congregation to be thankful. Paul tells the Colossians to let the peace of Christ rule in their heart as they have been called into one body. Namely, the church. We are told to be thankful for this, and indeed we ought to be. And perhaps that's the last thing we're thankful for, is being a part of his church. We are by grace called into the new humanity, the new creation, the new body of Christ. The church of the living God who grants to us new life. Further, Paul directs us to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we are to do this with thankfulness in our hearts. I trust that this morning we have been singing with thankfulness in our hearts. Maybe you are incredibly thankful that normally we have an organist who helps us with our singing. But we are to sing with thankfulness. Even when we're not talking about singing with thankfulness, we are to do it. And finally, Paul admonishes us to do whatever we do in the name of Jesus Christ, thanking God the Father through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, we are united to him, which means we are also united to one another. In a way, the world can never understand, let alone duplicate or imitate. The dynamic of living out the reality that we have died and been raised with Christ in our daily lives is to be fueled by, indeed permeated with, an attitude of thankfulness. So, beloved, we see that we Christians are to live daily with thankful hearts we should not be satisfied with a -a once-a-year celebration. And then we can go around the rest of the year as cantankerous, nattering nabobs. Especially in the wee hours of Black Friday. It is kind of interesting, isn't it, that the very time that immediately follows the Thanksgiving feast, uh, the shopping the stores which have increasingly pushed hours back to so that they're now open on Thanksgiving Day itself. Do you want a heart of thankfulness like Paul describes, commends and indeed commands, then seek it from the Lord and begin to seek to obey him in all this as in all else that he directs us to do. So in conclusion... We gather together this morning to worship God with thankful hearts for what he has done in his sending his son for us. Jesus lived and died and was raised and ascended, and now he ministers for us at the Father's side. We gather together to commit ourselves to daily mortification and vivification, the putting to death of sin and the encouragement of new life and growth. We gather together and then we disperse out to the world with thankful hearts, brimming over with joy for all God in Christ has done, is doing, and will yet do for and in us. And so I say to you, beloved, go this day with thanksgiving in your hearts. And let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us that speaks to the fact that we ought to be thankful throughout the year and not just on one day. But Lord, help us to celebrate the uh, day of Thanksgiving with a special sincerity and gladness of heart. We pray that uh, You would be with each one of us as we ponder uh, the necessity of thankfulness in our lives. We pray that Jesus would work thanksgiving in us. And in his name we pray this. Amen.